From Interlochen Public Radio, this is Points North, a show about the land, water, and inhabitants of the Upper Great Lakes. I'm Morgan Springer. 90% of North America's surface freshwater is in the Great Lakes. So every now and then, this idea gets thrown around, that the Great Lakes could solve the growing drought problem in the American West. But a NASA scientist has put it out there again that it is just a matter of time until we are piping the abundant Great Lakes water to cities out west, such as Phoenix in from Las a, Vegas. From a quantity perspective, you might imagine that there's a, a giant bullseye that's sitting over the Great Lakes, meaning that um, it's a target area, in a sense, uh, for the rest of the country. The fresh water of the Great Lakes is the lifeblood for our region. But in the future, it may be seen as a lifeblood to other regions, too. Dave Dempsey is the author of Great Lakes for Sale. He has more than three decades of experience working in environmental policy. And Dave, some people in the region worry about, you know, what we just heard about, water being piped to more arid parts of the country. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? Not in the short term. I think it's a long-term concern. There's two reasons, though, why it's not a short-term concern. One is the sheer cost to pipe water that far uphill, basically, and then across to uh, the California coast. The other is we do have a Great Lakes Compact that for now stands as a partial barrier to diverting water, although there are many holes that have sprung on that that could uh, in time be problems. Can you just very briefly explain what the Great Lakes Compact is? Yes, it's an interstate agreement among the eight Great Lakes states that was ratified by Congress. It bans large-scale diversions of water in pipelines and other mass mechanisms, but it does have a loophole that allows water in small containers, that is bottled water, commercial water, to be exported anywhere in the United States or actually around the world. And why do you think people tend to focus on water being piped out as opposed to other threats? Well, it's very visible and spectacular to imagine an aqueduct running, you know, across many states to faraway places. And I th- I understand that, but I think the death by a thousand cuts is more likely to occur with a number of small diversions and commercialized water. Wisconsin, since the compact has become law in 2008, has authorized uh, five new or increased diversions within its boundaries. So that's a, a taste of what's to come. And these diversions are legal under the compact if they're within Great Lakes states. And just to clarify, a water diversion is when Great Lakes water is taken outside the Great Lakes Basin or watershed. That's correct. It's a transfer of water outside the watershed into, in this case, the Mississippi River watershed. Your book, uh, Great Lakes for Sale, it came out in 2009. But then last fall, you updated it and came out with a new edition. I think you've mentioned a couple of the things, but what really prompted you to do that, to update it? Well, there were three things, One, two of them which we've mentioned. One is the talk, out west at least, of large-scale transfers of Great Lakes water. Another reason was that we've seen the compact now be implemented for about 12 years, 13 years, and we're starting to see the effects of both the diversion loophole within Great Lakes states and the commercialized water loophole. And then thirdly, a concern about water commodification and water markets is starting to become of clearer force in thinking about the future of the Great Lakes. Yeah, so I want to really hone in on that idea of commodifying water. I'm in my 30s. I can't think of a time when bottled water wasn't for sale. 
you know, and water wasn't some kind of commodity. But what you're talking about goes beyond selling bottled water, right? What, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, at least for now, we're specifically talking about a new market in waters, uh, California water futures that allows uh, investors to speculate on future prices of water and allows farmers to lock in prices for water so they can do some planning. The main objection environmentally, or at least uh, ethically, is that water is, is life. It's a different entity altogether from oil or corn, yet it's being increasingly treated as a market commodity that can be speculated in or actually privately owned. Okay, we're going to come back to Dave. But if you're listening and wondering, what the heck does it mean to trade water futures? You're definitely not alone. Economists Heidi Schweitzer and Ellen Bruno can help us understand. They co-authored an article explaining water futures trading. Now, you're both assistant professors, you, Heidi, at North Carolina State University, and you, Ellen, at University of California, Berkeley. I'm hoping you both treat me a little like a student who is very lost in this confusing world of futures trading. Heidi, we got to start really basic here. What is futures trading? So a futures contract is just a contract that establishes a price for something that's going to be delivered in, say, three months from now or six months from now. The most important group of people that usually participate in these markets are called hedgers. And these could be farmers, they could be grain merchandisers. Basically, hedgers are any group of people that actually touch the physical commodity. But it's a little bit more complex for water because the water futures contract that's been established is based off of an index. And so, no water actually changes hands. So let's say there was an agreement in January to buy water for $100 an acre foot in June, Um, but then in June the price went up to $120. Well, in that case, the seller that agreed to sell the water for $100 an acre foot has to give the buyer $20 to offset the cost of acquiring actual physical water on the spot market. Ellen, I want to bring you into the conversation. Who benefits from trading water futures? Well, the existence of these water futures are really designed to help hedgers buffer risk in their water prices. And so the primary beneficiaries when we think about the introduction of a water futures market are what we call hedgers, all of those that rely on that physical water. And so, you know, in the California context, we often think about farmers. They're trying to predict what their water supplies are going to be. And given sort of the just inherent risk and uncertainty associated with water supplies in California, there's a natural water price risk. And so being able to participate in a futures market, purchase contracts that allow these hedgers to lock in the price for water eliminates future uncertainty and helps farmers 
make planting decisions. Like it sort of helps when you think about planning for the future. It's kind of like insurance for farmers. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And the story you and Heidi wrote, it's titled, and it's a long title, so bear with me, Why Wall Street Investors Trading California Water Futures is Nothing to Fear and Unlikely to Work Anyway. Ellen, there's a concern that water investors or speculators could actually drive up the price of water, but you and Heidi both say you're not worried about that. Why is that? We sort of developed the hypothesis that this market seemed unlikely to really take off due to a handful of reasons related to water and and the underlying spot market in California and whatnot that we don't have to get into, but we weren't super worried about concerns about the futures market, in part because we don't think it's even going to take off. (laughs) Okay, so you're seeing people aren't really trading water's futures that much. You do write, when talking about potential benefits, that, that a water futures market could actually be useful in the face of climate change. Ellen, how so? Well, there have been studies by climate scientists predicting that climate change could be increasing the year-to-year variability in precipitation. And so if climate change is going to increase water price risk, then there's even more value in having a mechanism to try to buffer that price risk. So do you, either of you, would you see it as a positive thing if water futures trading happened more and in other parts of the country? In general, my view is not necessarily that they're good or bad, um, just that it's a financial instrument that has a specific purpose and people are only going to use it if they you know, think it might help them manage risk in some way. Dave, I want to bring you back in. Hearing from Heidi and Ellen, what's your response? For you, is, is water futures trading something you worry about? Um, I worry about it. I don't think it's a cause for panic. I don't think we need to agonize over it right now. I, I see it as part of a trend towards treating water as uh, uh, just a commodity, as something that's a market has a market value that can be quantified and turned into profit or loss. I totally disagree with that premise. I think water is a human right, and I don't think we should be speculating or trading in human rights. In your view, what does trading California water futures have to do with all the fresh water that's in the Great Lakes? Like, what's the connection there for, especially for our listeners who are mostly in the upper Great Lakes? In a sense, the concept is a slight step forward from the water commercialization that we've already seen in the Great Lakes region. I see this as part of a trend towards water commodification. I don't see it as a imminent or looming threat that's going to affect the Great Lakes in the next uh, couple of years. Heidi, you described water futures trading as a financial and economic tool. Dave's describing water as life, water as essential What's your response? Like, how do you, or you, Ellen, how do you square those two perspectives? Yeah, Morgan, it's actually something that I've thought about a lot because, you know, Dave is completely right that water is fundamental to human life and needs to be protected for that reason. But it's tricky in the sense that water is also an input to production in agriculture. And so 
in that sense, it already is a commodity, right? And I sort of think that it can be both and can and should be treated and regulated differently in different contexts. If water as an input to production in agriculture isn't priced correctly, it will lead to the misuse of that resource and, and exacerbate water scarcity issues and lead to sort of an inefficient allocation of, of a scarce resource. And there are ways we can use market instruments to um, improve the price and allocation of water in that sort of commodity space that doesn't have to hinder water for life uh, in, in other spaces. My guests are Ellen Bruno, Heidi Schweitzer, and Dave Dempsey. Dave's book is Great Lakes for Sale. Heidi and Ellen wrote an article titled Why Wall Street Investors Trading California Water Futures is Nothing to Fear and Unlikely to Work Anyway. Thank you all so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And that's a wrap on Points North this week. This episode was produced by Patrick Shea. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Max Dragu. My co-host Dan Wanchura is off on paternity leave. Yay, Dan. But he'll rejoin us in the summer. I'm Morgan Springer. Catch up on past episodes of the show at pointsnorthradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're hanging out in the podcast app, we hope you'll rate and review us. Have a great weekend. <laughs>